This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today again with my friend Larry Allen of Allen Federal. Larry, welcome back to the show, man. Mark, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, it's been too long, number one. Um, so uh, we, we are recording this uh, nine days before end of FY. So we're going to have a little bit about that, and uh, but it won't be all about that. So... Uh, let's look that moose in the face. What's your crystal ball? What I mean, we, we have uh, a continually contentious Congress <laughs> doing what? <laughs> well, Mark, I think the, the big high wire act right now, the big question is, are we going to have a government shutdown? Uh, um, and then my uh, bottom line answer to that is I think there's a slightly better than 50-50 chance that we will. Um, right now, if you look at the plan that Congress has put together, it ties a continuing resolution, the funding that would actually keep the government open until October, uh, with uh, debt ceiling increase, uh, which is very politically contentious, along with some extra spending, some of which people like stuff for like you know hurricane relief, but some of which is maybe a little bit uh, not directly tied to an immediate emergency. Uh, that's a big package. You're asking people to uh, take a big up or down vote, Mark. Uh, I liken it to a political game of chicken. Uh, we'll see if one side blinks before the other, but if nobody blinks, uh, we're going to be shut down. Um, yeah. Yeah. It is what it is, and you and I talk about this every damn year. Uh. Right. And you know, if you look on paper, the current uh, deal it would keep the government functioning until December 3rd, fine. Uh, gives people enough time to do appropriations. There almost certainly need to be another CR after December 3rd, but you know, longer-term CRs at the beginning of the year are better than short and choppy ones. But that means that there has to be uh, the votes uh, to get the thing through in the first place. And especially in the Senate, Mark, I'm just not sure that those votes are there. Uh, so if you're a government contractor, you don't really care so much about that right now because you're busy doing business at the end of the year, but you might start to care about it a lot in a couple of weeks. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about FY21 for a couple of minutes here. Um, this was our first full FY of pandemic. And frankly, I think both sides have responded extraordinarily well. What's your take? I think you're exactly right, Mark. I think there's a period of adjustment. Uh, but a lot of that adjustment we saw taking place during the course of FY19. As you said, this is the first full year we've been operating under a pandemic. People have figured out uh, this whole remote work thing and how that applies to the government. 
you can talk a lot about what it means outside government, but here we're talking about the government market. So basically people have figured it out. They've figured out how to do business. Uh, importantly, they've figured out that critical government missions still need to happen. And contractors have worked with their government partners to ensure uh, that they execute. Uh, so whether it's you know, all remote, whether it's some hybridized, whether it's a unique contracting method, uh, the government has been able to stand up and meet the requirements. Yeah, the, the, the whole telework thing seems to now not be just a pandemic kind of fad. It may be embedded in both the contracting world and the government uh, employee, employee world going forward is kind of a perk for uh, finding the right people for the right jobs. Well, I think you framed it up really nicely, Mark. Uh, a perk is a good way to look at it. Uh, we are seeing, I think, something really kind of unique in the federal space, and that is probably more telework more often than in many other industries. And I'm not sure that that's likely to change anytime soon. Uh, I can see where people might have to come back to the office one or two days a week, but it's gonna be mighty hard telling people that they have to crank up on the Mark train at 5.30 in the morning, five days a week, uh, to come in to, the, to a government office when they've been able to execute the missions, something we just talked about. They've been able to execute the missions working remotely for you know, an over a year now. The question becomes at some point, how do you incentivize employees to come back at least part-time? Because you really need that, I think, for overall cohesion, for overall uh, understanding what the, the mission is, understanding what your role in the larger mission is, uh, whether you're a contractor or whether you're a government uh, worker, uh, it's all in this marketplace. It's not too many degrees of separation, Mark. So we've seen in the commercial market, a lot of remote work has come to an end or is ending. But in the federal market, I think it's going to linger for a while. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to several people in government. I'm sure you have as well, but a lot of people in industry. And uh, part of what they're telling me is while they don't want to go back full time, they do miss the office camaraderie, not the the uh, classic water cooler stuff, but actually sitting down face to face meetings. I mean, you and I have been Zooming for the last 20 months. Uh, right. I, I haven't seen you in forever. Uh, <laughs> right. And, right. And it would be nice to get back in. Uh, to one-on-one -on -one in person uh, for this, but for all for all the other reasons you state, you know, this is ultimately a relationship-driven business. Relationships function at a certain level using uh, remote platforms, but they're never going to function quite the same as they do when you can get everybody around an actual table. Yeah, and you know, just the 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 whole process of coming up with solutions. I really think you can only do maybe not even a Pareto 80-20 on a virtual platform. When you get together with people and share ideas and pursue 
tangential thoughts, I think you get a lot more new ideas cooking. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, I hope that we can return to that. I think it's going to take some uh, incentives uh, to get uh, federal, the federal workforce back in. Contractor workforce may be a little bit easier to regulate. Um, but even then, you're going to have to start to answer some questions. You've got some good workers uh, who may have uh, not stayed put. They may enjoy remote status, and their remote status now may not be uh, where the remote location it was that it started out to be. Uh, so they're going to have to be some adjustments made across the board. Yeah, I mean, we have certain communities in the government where uh, physical presence is mandatory. I'm thinking, you know, certain, you know, the intelligence community, obviously, uh, certain uh, homeland security issues, law enforcement, but others will necessarily have to be hybrid in order to keep that workforce in place. Well, I think that's right. And, you know, we haven't even really touched on the, the corollary to that, which is reducing the overall federal workspace footprint. I know our friends at the General Services Administration have been looking at ways to reduce the federal footprint, reduce federal office space. At the same time, looking at some innovative use of flexible space. So, it's not really going to be a question of whether or not people can go back all of the time. There probably isn't going to be the space for them to go back to all of the time. Uh, that's going to change how people collaborate, how work gets done. Uh, that's just going to be another part of how we adapt to uh, what is going to take place moving forward, pandemic or no pandemic. Right. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll be back with Larry right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Larry Allen of Allen Federal. You can find Larry on LinkedIn and you can find him at allenfederal.com. One of the things I read every week is Larry's uh, three bullet newsletter the week ahead. So you might want to take a look at his website and subscribe to that. Quick read comes out Monday, usually late morning and it gives you a heads up on a couple of items. Um, and one of, one of those things that we want to talk about, Larry, which we talk about frequently, is uh, these best-in-class contracts and GWACs and their, their continued rise in uh, FY21. Mark, you're exactly right. Uh, standing government contracts, whether it's a GSA multiple award schedule uh, an agency-specific multiple award contract or something like a NASA soup. You know, these are all standing contracts that are growing in popularity. Uh, they're becoming real must-haves. They've always been an important part of a government contractor's approach to business. But now uh, it's, it's not just having those contracts, it's having the ones that maybe have a a best-in-class designation from the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, We are concluding the fiscal year right now where this is the busy time for these vehicles. They get a lot of money uh, committed to them. Why? Because they're easy to use. They're fast. Uh, They kind of have built-in competition because you're typically choosing uh, quickly among pre-vetted contractors. There's also pre-vetted pricing. 
out there that makes your pricing easier to do. Uh, when you have a year-end mark, it makes sense that the easy-to-use vehicles uh, get a lot of attention. But even when you're not, increasingly we have short fiscal years every year. Uh, we might have you know, meaningful three-quarters of a year at best, and I don't think we're going to quite have that for FY22. All of that means that you just don't have a compressed time frame at end of year. You have a compressed time frame throughout the year. And I think that's part of what continues to drive uh, use of these vehicles, particularly uh, the best-in-class vehicles from designated by OMB. They're seen as safe, uh, low-risk ways to do acquisitions. And for contracting officers that know that they've got people looking over their shoulder that's a good way to go. Yeah, I mean, you know, frankly, we have people in the market who uh, who weren't in the market the last time we had a budget passed on time. So <laughs> the the compressed year uh, pushed by the perpetual CR syndrome is, you know, it's a way of life now. Um, so we're we're, I mean. Give me, give me a couple of pieces of advice here on on what uh, companies should do to, to alleviate the pain of that compressed year. Well, I think the, the couple of things you have to do. One is you have to know what time of year it is and what that means for your business cycle. Uh, the time to have meet and greets and show your new model year stuff really comes up in that November to May timeframe. You've got to have your message out. You've got to have your message ready. You have to know pretty quickly after the end of one fiscal year, what you want to talk about uh, for the next fiscal year, both in terms of what your solutions are going to be and how you think your government customer ought to acquire those solutions. I'm not the first person to say that, you ought to need to think about FY22 pretty much right on the heels of FY21 coming to an end because while the business may not be starting right within, how the business is going to get conducted is going to very quickly become a source of discussion. And you want to be in on the as the contractor as early in that cycle as possible. One of the other things that I think, Mark, uh, is increasingly important, too, is making sure that you've got some access to some of these standing government-wide acquisition contract vehicles, whether it's a schedule, uh, whether it's your own contract, or whether it's a contract that's held by a partner of yours. Look, you can, not everybody needs to run out and get themselves a GSA schedule. Sometimes it's a very good idea. But the fact is, you can apply for a schedule contract anytime, but you can't apply for any other GWACs. They have specific open and closed dates uh, at any time. So you need to find some partners. Uh, if you're looking uh, to do business through uh, you know, a, a NASA soup contract and you don't have a NASA soup contract, well, you need to find a partner who does and make sure that you can do business with them. Uh, it's that type of thing. And I think we're going to see this over and over again with other contracts. We're going to see it with Alliant. We're going to see it with GSA's brand new 
Astro program. Uh, those are things where uh, you could see a lot of business go through those vehicles over uh, the next couple of years and making sure that you've got the right partner so that you can leverage that is going to be part of your government plan. Okay. So the, the, uh, if you're not on one of the best in class, um, how, how do you determine which vehicles you want to partner with somebody on and what would be the initial approach, uh, your value proposition to that partner to get on? Uh, those are great questions, Mark. And what it really means is that you as the contractor or would-be contractor, you have to do your homework. You have to do your homework up front. What vehicles do you want to have access to? Well, that kind of depends on what agencies you want to sell to, what agencies you want to do business with. And that, of course, foretells that you've done the market research to know what agencies you want to focus on, because not every contractor can be everywhere at once. I always recommend that companies focus. So you have to focus on the agencies that you want to do business with, and then you're focusing on the contract vehicles they use to conduct that business and the companies that have those contract vehicles. So that's kind of your first phase research that you have to do uh, before you understand what vehicles are important, what potential partners are important. As for the discussion with the partner, the biggest thing that government prime contractors want to hear from a potential partner is, hey, I've got this business on the line that it's in my pipeline. I need some help with it. Uh, maybe it's something that has four parts to it. And you as the smaller business, the newer business, you can do a couple of those parts but you know that you can't do all six of them, so you need a partner who can help you. That's music to a prime contractor's ears, Mark. Uh, they're going to want to work with you on that business. They're definitely going to want to hear more about it, particularly if they don't already have a qualified partner that they're working with, which is why you get in early. Uh, but that's the... Uh, you know, that's the number one thing. The, the last thing you want to lead with is size status and you have to do business with me because I'm small. Nobody wants to hear that. And the answer is no, I don't because there are plenty of qualified small businesses that do have leads, that do have established business that I've worked with before and I know they're low risk. So, you know, you want to show why your company uh, has good business development, why you're low risk and why you're qualified to do the work you want to do. Cool. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Larry and I shall return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Larry Allen of Allen Federal. And as I've said before, you can find him on LinkedIn or you can find him at allenfederal.com, A-L-L-E-N, federal.com. And we always talk about the best in class contracts, but sometimes you got to wonder how some, you know, frankly are still with us. CIO SP4 out of NITAC has, has had a series of issues. I mean, look at how long it took to award SP3. You know, I had people calling me and say, the RFP for four is out and I just got my award for three. What? So what's going on here? 
Mark, CISP4, which is one of NIH's large uh, IT-related government-wide acquisition contracts, uh, to say it's been running into headwinds, it's really been running into a Category 5 hurricane. <laughs> That's the better way to say it. And I think there are a lot of reasons for it. And this is a cautionary tale for companies who bid on these and prepare uh, to capture these large vehicles because they're increasingly seen as, as must-have for reasons we discussed earlier on this program. So I think I lost track at 12 amendments to the CISP RFP. And I think this is a, an issue of the agency trying to bite off more than it can chew and choosing an acquisition approach that in hindsight, uh, they might want to have rethought if they had the opportunity to rethink it. What I mean by that is CISP4 decided that there was going to be a unitary contract. CISP3 had an unrestricted and a small business. And a lot of GWAC contracts traditionally, Mark, have had an unrestricted and a small business companion. Uh, but they, NIH made the decision to proceed and do a unified contract for everybody. All of the issues, almost all of the issues, have been over how small businesses get credit, how small businesses can team, how small businesses can be a joint venture, what type of talent each member has to possess, how it gets scored. Uh, it wasn't very clear at the beginning. There were a lot of, uh, a lot of chefs, not too many cooks uh, on this one. Everybody wanted to be in charge. And so we ended up with something that uh, has been a mess. I mean, that's the technical term. I don't think it's anywhere in the federal acquisition regulations, but it's been a mess. And we're still not out of the woods yet we're going to end up with post-award protests on it that will delay the implementation of the contract. All of this, Mark, I think could have been avoidable if NITAC had just looked at what happened with GSA a couple of years ago now, when they had Alliant 2, GSA approached Alliant 2, thankfully, as Alliant 2 unrestricted and Alliant 2 small business. Well, today, Alliant 2 Unrestricted is alive and well and conducting government business. We know that SB, Alliant 2 SB, crashed on the launching pad. It never got anywhere. That cost companies a lot of money, cost companies a lot of time and effort. It's not like these people just wake up and decide they're going to pursue a contract today. Usually, they've been you know, running capture for a good 12 months or more, much more in some cases. And so the same type of scenario is unfolding here with CISP4. Unfortunately, the last chapter hasn't been written yet, but so far it's reading a little bit more like Stephen King than anybody would like. Yeah, the, you know, the thing that struck me initially out of the SP4 vehicle was the attempt to create and define a mid-tier contractor. And I love the effort. But as I understand it, there's no federal regulation or law that defines what this beast is, and it's not up to a contracting office to make that determination. That, that's right. Uh, and this was something that I was surprised to see. Definitely going where angels fear to tread, uh, Mark. Uh, as you pointed out, there is no regulatory definition in the FAR. 
so there's no acquisition policy on what constitutes a mid-tier contractor. There's no statutory policy on what constitutes a mid-tier contractor. There's been a lot of pressure, not just on NITAC, but on all the major contracting agencies to give some sort of nod to what we call mid-tier companies. So I understand that there was pressure put on by industry, but this was something that probably really wasn't NITAC's purview to start. It may be something that could have started either in Congress or with the FAR Council. And we're seeing some of the things that you'd expect to see uh, roll out with that lack of backing. Yeah, and I admire them for making the attempt, but it just opened the door to, to a single area of protest that's huge. Right, and as I said, we, we, we're, we're not done yet. I mean, uh, we've seen lots of protests. We've seen a number of amendments so far. Even if everything is quiet from here on till award, Mark, there will inevitably be post-award protests that delay this. How long? Unsure. But boy, if you're a contractor looking at uh, this type of unitary approach, you want to be thinking really carefully about what your capture strategy is. And that actually kind of takes us into something I know we want to talk about, too, and that's the GSA Oasis follow-on. Right now, GSA is thinking, they haven't made any final decisions, at least not to my knowledge, but GSA is thinking about a unitary uh, single approach for its Oasis follow-on. The current Oasis contract has a Oasis Unrestricted and an Oasis Small Business, both of which have done quite well. Uh, But GSA right now is talking about doing away with a small business contract and having a unitary one. I'm not sure why you would do that, frankly, when there's experience first from within your own agency and now with what we've seen happening with CISP4, none of those experiences indicates that uh, you are safe in small business contracting waters with a unitary uh, contract approach. It, it's in fact quite the opposite. So I'm looking at Oasis and I've got that shaded with a little bit of light yellow right now for caution. Okay. So number one, I, I agree. It would be a shame if it came out without that SB uh, component. But GSA has another one, uh, actually a couple more rolling out. What's the status with Polaris at this point? Well, Mark, Polaris is supposed to be more or less the Alliant 2SB next generation. It's not going to be, it's not called Alliant 2, it's called Polaris, but this is kind of the replacement, the next idea uh, for a small business IT contract. My understanding is that GSA is very close right now to uh, coming out with an RFP for it. It could come out, you know, right on the timing of the new year, new fiscal year. It's been very much anticipated. I know that the agency has been looking very closely at what's been happening at NIH. They've been talking a lot to industry. Uh, I think they've also probably tried to get some good lessons learned from what happened internally uh, from Alliant 2 Small Business. Uh, you're never going to make an RFP protest proof, Mark, but what you can try to do, and GSA has actually been successful sometimes in the past, 
at making their RFP successful protest proof. So I'd expect to see Polaris coming out pretty quickly. Okay. Now, initially, when I heard about Polaris, I heard several things that it was going to be restricted to certain set-aside categories. And then I heard that maybe that wasn't going to be the approach. So what is your inside scoop on that right now? Mark, last I saw uh, from what GSA was saying publicly is that part of the contract, part of Polaris would be set aside. One part would be set aside for, I believe, women-owned small businesses, and I think the other one was hub zones. Uh, Originally, the entire contract was going to be set aside for those classifications, as you pointed out. But GSA, I think, retracted that pretty early on. So we're going to see a pool for women-owned and maybe a pool for hub zone, and then we're going to have pools for other types of small businesses. So there'll be opportunities for all types of small businesses to participate in Polaris. Including non-set-aside smalls? Well, we haven't seen the final RFP yet. I think we're going to see it open for uh, certainly all of the socioeconomic designations. I think we're going to see it be a, at least one pool for uh, all types of small business designations. That would be unique and very welcome. So we, we have one other contract I want to touch on, and it goes back to, what is it, the Jetsons? Wasn't that their dog? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Astro. Astro, the Jetsons dog. Uh, for those that go back that far, Astromark is GSA's kind of newest uh, entry into the uh, IDIQ pool, multiple awards. Uh, it came out of GSA's FedSim shop. FedSim, some listeners may know better for doing assisted acquisitions uh, and buying off of other types of contracts. In this case, Astro is their own homegrown contract that they will initiate buys through, uh, expected to get a lot of use by different parts of DOD. On the surface market, may look like it has a pretty narrow focus uh, for certain types of uh, DOD requirements, but uh, some of the contractors that I've talked to think that it actually has a little broader scope than that, and that you could potentially put some other types of professional services through that might be immediately obvious. I'm expecting that Astro could have a pretty bright future and that uh, Astro uh, is going to, uh, I don't think it's going to pose a challenge to the Oasis follow-on. I'm not going to go nearly that far, but what I do say, I think is that GSA is going to have at least two viable options for certain types of professional services work uh, in the GWAC world one being Astro and the other being the Oasis follow-on. And I'm, I will have to see how those compete for business. Cool. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Larry Allen and I shall return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with Larry Allen. And we're talking about all this stuff coming down the pike, end of FY beginning of FY. Uh, But Larry, you know, a week or so ago, I I thought this was dead, but apparently not. I I had a client call and say they, hey, 
there's this LPTA component in this vehicle that I'm supposed to be bidding. They thought it was dead. I thought it was dead. Please clarify for me. So, Mark, uh, LPTA has certainly uh, been reduced over time in terms of being used as a government acquisition method. We kind of saw the heyday of low price technically acceptable, oh, nine or ten years ago uh, when it seemed like everybody was doing it and the uh, idea is, you know, why shouldn't we always get lowest price technically acceptable? Well, you know, not everybody drives around with, you know, lowest price technically acceptable car. There are reasons why you do different things. Uh, you need best value in there. But the fact remains that LPTA is, is still out there as a government acquisition method. Uh, it's always going to be used to some extent. Sometimes there may be a valid reason why the government decides to go low price for something that's you know, like a true commodity. But sometimes you're going to see people going uh, towards lowest price just because they want to get in under a budget and the, the value equation goes out the door. If you're a contractor, my advice is to try and get in on that early part of the acquisition planning. We recently saw a verbiage mark that talked about a, an average 74-day procurement acquisition lead time, or PALT, uh, 74 days. So uh, if you're a contractor, you get in on the first part of those 74 days, or even before the 74-day time period kicks off, then you've got a decent chance at formulating the acquisition so that it's not LPTA and it would uh, include things that all contractors would probably want to include in terms of trade-offs for different types of value. Okay. So from LPTA, you know, let's, let's just talk a little more about some of the trends. We, how long have we been hearing about CMMC now and who's driving this bus? I uh, don't know who's driving the bus. Technically, there is a bus driver at DOD for CMMC, Mark. This is the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, uh, something that was supposed to be a requirement by now uh, for all DOD uh, contracts, uh, or at least supposed to be rolling out. We're supposed to be in year two of a five-year rollout for CMC requirements, but we're not. Uh, for lots of reasons, one of which is DOD can't agree really on uh, what needs to be done under certain circumstances. And I believe that there are only a couple of third-party certifiers that have been accredited now to perform certifications. So one of the questions that DOD is looking at, given that reality, is whether or not companies can go back and self-certify. The original idea was that you would need a third-party assessor uh, to give yourself that independent validation, but it took a long time to get uh, even the first company accredited to do those evaluations, Mark, with a queue of thousands of DOD contractors in line uh, waiting to get accredited. Yeah, but, but um, let me ask you a question here. I'm under the impression that there are uh, two or three levels of these third-party certifiers, one to get you through stage one, one to get you through stage two, one to get you to through stage three. This sounds like an English uh, hedge maze to me. <laughs> well, I think you're right in that. Uh, 
it, and the bottom line is each successive level costs you more money as a contractor. And that really, when the government is trying to attract small businesses and the administration has set a goal for increasing its small minority disadvantaged business by 50% over five years, you have to do a little head scratching. So how does that really fit in with requiring a small business to pay probably at least six figures, Mark, to get some level of third-party accreditation uh, just for the honor of doing business or the opportunity to do business with the Department of Defense. Right. Uh, and, and you know, you, you said that only a couple of people had reached that third-party certification. I know a lot of businesses that are trying to get that certification, not get their own CMMC, but to be a third-party certifier. And, and they don't have any clarity. Right. And right now, DOD, I don't know that they've taken the entire process offline, but they've taken a significant portion of it offline. They're reviewing uh, the different tiers, what it takes to be uh, certified in a different tier. Again, whether or not self-accreditation is going to be okay, at least for the initial tier or two. Uh, So there's no clear word coming out of DOD. And in the middle of this, the person who was driving the bus was removed from DOD entirely. A new person, the old person's boss, uh, I believe is now the bus driver, which means that you know, you're know you down a person. Previously, this program was a big enough deal that you had somebody signed to it full time. Now you've got somebody who shares the responsibility for doing this with something else. That's all by way of saying, yeah, this has become not as neat and clean as anybody would like it to be. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think any of us are making light of the need for the government to have cyber assurance, Mark. I think everybody kind of understands the baseline need for particularly the Department of Defense to be able to rely on the cybersecurity of uh, the companies that it does business with. Uh, I think rather the issue is in the CMMC rollout itself and how that is probably working ultimately against the ballot assurance for cybersecurity to be baked in with your important contractors. I don't know why they just don't go to Ron Ross over at NIST and say, how should we structure this to make it as painless as possible and yet be effective? Well, right. CMMC is after all based on the NIST standard and uh, NIST had created the standard for a number of years, the reason CMMC was stood up was because very few people stood up and saluted the NIST standard, but it right. is still a core NIST standard. Yeah. So from CMMC to cyber in general to, you know, the issue of supply chain, take me down this path. <laughs> well, supply chain risk management, Mark, is another front burner issue, particularly with companies doing business with the Department of Defense, but also with the Department of Homeland Security and other agencies uh, that deal with sensitive issues. Supply chain risk management is something that all contractors are having to show. Supply chain integrity itself is nothing new. It's been around since, whoa, well back to my days of the Coalition for Government Procurement, uh, which has been a little while. But now, Mark, it's taken on its whole new life. Uh, to go through all parts of the supply chain, 
uh, even for commercial suppliers. And again, uh, it's good and valid to want to have secure supply chains. You want to make sure that you're getting legitimate equipment, you're getting you know, legitimate solutions from people that are authorized to offer them to you, but you also have to look at the cost involved and what that means, particularly for small businesses. And I'm going to call out the irony here because we started this segment out, Mark, with the discussion of LPTA. So we're supposed to have uh, secure supply chains, supply chain risk management. That's the issue of the day. We're supposed to by now have some element of CMMC for cybersecurity, but you can't ever get away, can you, from people who uh, want the lowest price, who are going to make that buy on uh, eBay uh, because they can't get something that they need for an outdated system. It's no longer a critical, no longer current production. Uh, or they're always going to be the people who, you know, I just got a bargain shoppers uh, who didn't. So we have to uh, understand that government sometimes actually doesn't want to pay the price <laughs> that's entailed for the government's own requirements. Uh, and we have to be honest about that. So while well, we're imposing, you know, you know these... how to get around this, Larry, <laughs> the trade pubs should go back to hard copy and in their Sunday edition, put in those coupons. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but yeah, we all have to be realistic, Mark, that uh, the requirements are good and valid requirements on their core for security, but they cost something. They cost something for industry. And if they cost something for industry, there has to be a basic assurance that government customers are going to respect that and buy that way and not just go off and try to save a couple of bucks here and there because they can get it cheaper online. Uh, and, but Lord knows from who. Yeah. Um, so let's get, let's, let's wrap up with a couple of quick tips on life in a CR world. <laughs> uh, we're, here we are, you know, uh, outset of a new fiscal year, surprise, it's a continuing resolution. Uh, just a few reminders for your listeners. Life under a continuing resolution means that the government gets to continue doing what it was doing before. So the stuff that was happening in FY20 gets to continue on in FY21, as long as the project wasn't completed. Uh, but you can't have any new starts new starts that require appropriated dollars. So uh, right now that kind of puts a wrench in plans for launching anything new that requires appropriated dollars. So you're going to have to look at other sources of funding. Uh, if it's IT, is there any money in the IT modernization fund? Uh, do some agencies have their own capital planning uh, budgets that are non-appropriated funds? Some do. Uh, they have limitations on what they can spend, but sometimes that, that your project could be part of that. So it's, it's worth looking into non-appropriated fund sources. Uh, but the other thing I would say about life under a CR is make sure that you get in writing uh, from contracting officers, only contracting officers, uh, month-by-month month renewals for your leases, month-by-month month renewals for your rentals, whatever as a service that you bill on a monthly basis for. Uh, 
Most of the time you'll get paid if you don't get it in writing, Mark, but most of the time it's not good enough for people all of the time. I know I always expect to get paid as I'm sure you do. So get it in writing from the contracting officer that even though they can't commit to an annual subscription right now because they don't have the money, you do want to get it in writing that they're going to continue to pay you every month. Good advice, man. Larry, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Let's get back together uh, a month or so into the, uh, the new FY and see what's going on. Mark, I appreciate it. And a little uh, toast, a new glass of champagne to the new year. I will have mineral water, but whatever. Uh, (laughs) Larry, again, thanks. Larry Allen, allenfederal.com. Find him on LinkedIn. Uh, This is not my day job. I advise companies on all aspects of marketing to the government, particularly differentiating your company, especially if you're small, and leveraging LinkedIn to reach out and develop a network of key people in your particular niche. Drop me a line at markamtower at gmail, and we can discuss. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off-Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off-Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. This Justin, reportedly pigs can fly. We're going live to... Can't take another crazy headline? Well, here's something you can appreciate. The MyGM Rewards card gives you best-in-class rewards with four points for every dollar spent everywhere and seven total points earned per dollar spent with GM, bringing you one step closer to a new GM ride. That's the power of appreciation from us to you. Subject to credit approval, terms and limitations apply. Visit MyGMRewardsCard.com.